just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're serious about fantasy baseball, you'll have heard about and read about The Model for advanced pitcher analysis. But what is it? How does it work? And how do we use it for fantasy? I'll ask Eno Saris about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 9th. It's show number 20 of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have a two-part feature expert interview with Eno Saris from The Athletic. In part one, we'll discuss Ellie De La Cruz and where all of Cincinnati's great prospects will play. Alec Manoa's demotion all the way to the Complex League. We'll talk about how teams are using advanced tracking to spy on pitcher tells and why players have a tough time when they move to a new team. Then later in part two, Eno and I will talk about the model for pitcher analysis, where it came from, how it works, and how fantasy managers can take advantage. Plus, he'll have his boons and banes using the model's rest-of-season projections and his go-to beer and the five S's of the perfect sandwich. We'll also have our weekly fantasy news update with Ray Murphy, co-general manager, projections expert, writer and analyst at BaseballHQ.com, looking at American League hitters Aaron Judge, Jordan Alvarez and Adam Duval, and American League pitchers Joe Ryan and Matt Brash. Then we'll head over to the National League, with hitter news including National League hitters Pete Alonso and J.D. Martinez, and pitchers Corbin Burns and Noah Syndergaard. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the guys at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in the Minor League Minute. Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon looks at San Francisco outfield prospect Luis Matos. And in the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Angels outfielder Trey Cabbage. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Eno Saris is in the house. We are going to talk some baseball. And beer and sandwiches. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Eno Saris from The Athletic. Eno, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been quite a while. Yeah, thanks for having me. How many teams are you playing this year and how are they doing so far? (laughs) I'm always on the effort to cut down. I think I'm down from 15 uh, to closer to 10 or 11 and... uh, I'm doing all right. Uh, not as good as last year when I set the record uh, in AL Labor uh, and almost won my NFBC main. But uh, I'll have some wins this year. Yeah, you had a fantastic year in AL Labor last year. But it was 115, 118, something like that. 
Yeah, I think uh, I think I think it was 112, but you know that's you know it's a 10 category league with uh, with 12 points, so 120 is the max. Yeah. <laughs> so How wide was your exciting. margin? Do you remember? Um, I think I won by uh, like 25 points. Wow. We got a little closer at some at one point, but uh, uh, yeah, no, it was really fun, really fun year. Just the, the pitching staff all worked out, and uh, one of the big keys was we had a supplemental draft of free agents. Uh, remember because of oh, the lockout, right. there were all these free agents there, and I had a conversation with Derek Cardi where we were talking about you know just overall strategy and, and it occurred to us that you know getting a player that you can play all year before the season with fab budget is an extreme advantage because people hold on to the hammer all year hold on to their auction money their, their, their free agent money all year to maybe get a guy at the trade deadline but you know that's only you know another month uh, or, or two, you know, whereas I could get a guy for six months. So I went hard in and got Anthony Rizzo, uh, for like 80 bucks and out of a hundred. And so I didn't have much, uh, free agent money the rest of the season, but I had Anthony Rizzo. So that was a big part of the, the victory for six months. Did that also come into your budget planning? I, I remember talking with other people about this and the thought that came into my mind was knowing you could probably get at least one playable player could you re re reduce one of your slot bids right all the way down to a dollar and spend a little bit more across the board or, or boost your, your top slot? It did. It did. And, uh, what it did for me is I, I try to avoid having $1 hitters, uh, for the most part, I might have, you know, every, every team in AL only, or most teams with auctions, you have a few $1 guys. Uh, but I was trying to avoid, uh, having <clears throat> one dollar uh, hitters normally, this time I decided I would have two or three one dollar hitters. Uh, spend a little bit more money on pitching because I would anticipate getting an extra hitter in the uh, in the Fab uh, auction, the Anthony Rizzo. I sort of anticipated. I thought I would get AJ Pollock um, or Carlos Correa, but uh, very happy to have gotten Anthony Rizzo. Oh, I bet you were and, and happy not to have gotten AJ Pollock, I'd wager. That's right. <laughs> well, everybody's talking about the Reds' decision to finally call up their super prospect, Ellie De La Cruz. Uh, you discussed this on the Rates and Barrels pod with Derek Van Riper and Chris Welsh. Uh, Welsh and DVR were really excited about Ellie De La Cruz, but you stepped in and you said, to your credit, you're going to be the cold water guy. On Rates and Barrels, your assessment of Ellie De La Cruz's potential in the short term for this season was a bit of cold water. Why your lack of enthusiasm? I was uh, playing a bit, I think. Um, you know, I'm, I'm as excited as anybody else about a guy, his height, his uh, with his speed, his ability to hit the ball so hard. But I wanted to just uh, point out that he does have a flaw in his resume, those strikeouts, and that that strikeout rate put him, uh, you know, right next to another player who's had a really good career but did not have a good debut, did not have a good denouement, which is uh, Javi Baez. And Javi Baez, uh, you know, there are some similarities there uh, to, to Ali de la Cruz in terms of uh, game built on athleticism with strikeouts. I think the big difference is that Ellie does not chase the way that Javi did. And uh, in this case, that means you see saw even in his very first at bat against Tony Gonsolin, 
Gonsolin was really trying to get him to bite on the slider, the back foot slider. And he kept throwing it. And Ellie, Ellie did swing once. But he wasn't going to be fooled again, and so he 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 did he he held back. Uh, I think on three more of those attempts by Tony Gonsolin and took a walk. So that alone, sometimes one plate appearance can kind of tell you that's not quite a Javi Baez type at bat right there. You guys also discussed where De La Cruz will play amid all the Reds' excellent young infielders. Uh, right now, I think it's Spencer Steer at first, Jonathan Indy at second. Matt McLean at short and De La Cruz at third. And then you got Nick Senzel and Tyler Stevenson clogging things in the outfield in DH. So it looks to me like the guy who ends up blocked could be perhaps the most impressive minor league hitter the Reds have this season in the minors. Christian Encarnacion Strand, 15 homers in 180 plate appearances and an 1124 OPS. But he's a th- first base, third base kind of guy. What do his chances of promotion look like with this crowded field already in Cincinnati, do you think? Yeah, and another wild card is Joey Votto is on rehab rehab in the minors, but Votto's not playing well. And so, you know, he's got a 40-plus percent strikeout rate and no power, and I just don't know how that fits into this. Because if you you bring him up and say, well, we have to bring him up. There's 30 days limit on the, on the rehab. Or do you say, Oh, he's hurt again and put him back on the IL, um, you know, just push that decision out. Even if you do that, as you pointed out, you've still got Tyler Stevenson playing DH and Senzel and, you know, the, the outfielders they've collected, uh, you kind of are running out of spaces to put people, but talent wins, wins out in my opinion. And what I would assume is Tyler Stevenson starts playing more catcher, Senzel plays in the outfield and uh, Encarnacion Strand, even with uh, a Votto promotion at some point, uh, could uh, push. I would love to see if they start playing him in the corner outfield. You know, um, this that's something that teams sometimes shy away from, uh, sticking a guy in the corner outfield or playing him at DH because uh, they want to keep that player with as much positional value as long as possible. But this is a team where they're just trying to fit people in. So maybe uh, watch to see if, if Encarnacion Strand puts an outfielder glove on re- uh, uh, soon or uh, if Tyler Stevenson starts catching more because that opens up DH. So I do think he'll make his way to the big leagues this year, but it is pretty complicated now. Have you heard any rumors of a trade? They've got a lot of these offensive prospects and some reasonably well-established uh, young offensive players like India, any chance we see the Reds deal for pitching, which just looks like their weakness, uh, if they intend to or aspire to playoffs? That's on the table. I mean, we had a, a piece by Ken Rosenthal on The Athletic just wondering out loud about Jonathan India and his future, and that really uh, that really upset Kirk Herbstreet for some reason. Um, but, <laughs> I saw that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But, but I mean, it's just realistic that India is going to get more expensive soon. Um, and he's, uh, I don't think he's necessarily, he's not like an untouchable type player. He's, he's not the most amazing defensively. The power, you know, is okay. I could see them trading Jonathan India for a pitcher. Um, but it takes a willing partner. And right now with the injury situation across baseball, it's kind of hard to, really land on a team that says oh, we've got extra pitching we can t- we can t- send you some pitching 
And everybody, you know, you might say, what about the Marlins? Well, that's what every front office is saying. What about the Marlins? <laughs> and you might have to take a guy who's injured uh, as part of the deal. Uh, the other team that popped into my mind, I was talking about this on a podcast earlier this week, is uh, Cleveland, where they've they're running into a bit of a, of a log jam with Gavin Williams being maybe the best pitcher in AAA and no place uh, to put him unless they start doinking around with some of the other young guys that have already been promoted and are doing fairly well. So I think there's a lot of moving parts here, which makes it interesting. That's for sure. That's a, that's a good one to bring up. Cleveland is probably the, uh, you know, along with Florida is the other team that's looking to deal pitching. But, you know, if you look at their past, uh, most likely the pitching that they're trying to uh, to trade is, is Shane Bieber. Shane Bieber's velo is down. Uh, he's got he's been de-emphasizing the fastball and been using a cutter a lot more. Um, and you just wonder would Shane Bieber look like the Shane Bieber we have right now if he had to play Great American, if he had to pitch at Great American Ballpark and, and pitch in basically the second most hitter-friendly ballpark in the league? Um, and that's something that they're probably wondering in the Cincinnati front office. And also, if you're Cincinnati, do you want to trade six years of a hitter or four years of a hitter for a year and a half of Shane Bieber? Do you think you're that close? Um, and, uh, so that, that's, what's, uh, you know, being bandied about in, in the Cincinnati front office. I think it's a little bit more likely that Shane Bieber goes to a contender that likes that knows that they're going to maybe even skip the first round of the playoffs, like a, a Dodgers or Yankees or something like that. I, I mean, I, I'm sorry. I said the Yankees, but that's yeah. a pretty tough division, but you know, something like the Dodgers where they feel like. They've got the division in hand, and they're looking already at what their playoff rotation will look like. What kind of effect, you know, do you think the change in playoff structure to add teams has had on the willingness of teams to make trades? I was just thinking about some of these teams when I look at them that are normally the kind of team we look at and say, well, they'll be rebuilding or they'll be trying to pick up prospects. But now it seems like it, we get later and later in the year where a lot of teams still think they have a shot at the playoffs and win that one game wild card thing. And maybe you're in, you get a couple of extra home gates with playoff ticket pricing and all of those kind of things. It has that dampened the trade market because more and more teams think that they're in the running? Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you look at uh, the the teams that have more than a ten percent chance of the wild card. You've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and and the eighth uh, that doesn't have ten percent, but the eighth is the Guardians, which they're kind of usually a good team, and they could rattle off some wins. That's in the American League and the National League. You've uh, you've got six, and then the Cardinals. Who I, and the Pirates, and then the Pirates are in that position right now, um, but aren't projected to end up there. So, like, that leaves uh, just very few sellers. And some of the sellers, you know, like the Cubs, are they like a, a, a real seller? Are the White Sox like a, a tear it down seller? Um, you know, and and what will that what will happen to the front office in in, in Chicago's South Side, and maybe even both sides? Um, if they're if they're tearing down right now because 
these are teams that have not been competitive for a while and have, you know, supposedly marching towards competitiveness. So those, that's a really fraught with like, that's a decision where like the front office has to be like, what happens to our jobs if we decide to sell now? Um, and so I'd be worried uh, that those situations will keep like the White Sox have a lot of relievers that people could use Giolitos uh, on an expiring contract. There's a lot of players they could move if they decided to do it. If they don't, you're left shopping with the Tigers, Royals, A's, uh, Rockies, and Nationals, which they don't really have that much you want. No, that's exactly it. That's one of the reasons they are where they are. <laughs> that's, they, uh, that's why they're so bad. Yeah. yeah. There was a news story of note this week out of Toronto. Right-hander Alec Manoa got sent down to the Florida Complex League. And on Twitter, you said that your pitching model, which we'll talk about later in the second half of the interview, Never loved Alec Manoa, but I can't say I saw this outcome in his future. First, why did the model not appreciate Alec Manoa? Uh, you know, I think I overspoke a little bit, over overstepped. Uh, it, it thought he had a great slider, uh, especially when he when he first debuted. It really liked his slider, uh, and I think he had a really good slider. But what you've seen over time, what the model's picked up on, is he's lost sweep on the slider. The, swipe, the slider has, has changed movement. Um, and the, and the fastball is lost below. So, uh, just the, it's really just been a gradual, uh, loss of stuff over time. And even going into the season, uh, I think, uh, all sorts of models were picking up on it because projections were saying before the season that he would have a four and a half ERA and that, um, you know, most of the projections were, were not that, uh, excited about Manoa this season. Um, this is th- what I was trying to express was this is even further than anybody thought, you know what I mean? Like this is this like a six ERA and being demoted all the way down, uh, is worse than I thought. But I, the, the real key for him is where they're sending him is where they have a, you know, a hundred million dollar pitching lab. And so they're resetting him in a place where he's not even going to pitch in games for a while. They're going to, you know, treat him like a 17-year-old prospect coming in and being like, let's design your pitches. Let's uh, figure out your your delivery. Let's maybe get a little bit more athletic in the body, like work on your body too, and do all these things in a way that's outside of the baseball schedule. So that if we need to lose some weight and, and we need to change some, uh, some, some pitch movements, we can do this without worrying when your next start is. Little flexibility as well, I think might not go astray. I've read some mostly uninformed tweets about the insult to Manoa because he got sent down to the complex league rather than just down to AAA. But I, I think that's wrong. And why would the Jays send Manoa to the seemingly lower level complex league and not to AAA? Yeah, it is because that is where their pitching lab is. You know, it's uh, it's a it's a really beautiful. Uh, lab that did cost them a hundred million dollars and it's outfitted with all sorts of high-tech uh, gadgetry high-tech uh, cameras uh, you know and cameras in different angles a lot of times we see from behind the pitcher or from behind the plate uh, they'll have cameras on the ceiling in these types of labs so they can see from above what's going on and from below so uh, you know, basically a 3D view of uh, this in 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 sort of minute detail uh, can help them be like, oh, you know, the elbow is doing this or, or the hand is coming through or even, uh, you know, your hips are doing this. So uh, they also have their biomechanical, a uh, uh, biomechanical setup where they can 
they put the little dots on you, uh, these little markers on you. I, I did this at driveline. Uh, you got to take a shirt off, put all these little dots on, and then uh, you throw, and they can break you down into a skeleton so they can start to see what your sort of bones, what your muscles are doing. Um, and then when they drill you and they do like, okay, we want you to do this drill, we want you to do this exercise, they can come back and be like, aha, we changed this movement pattern here and we changed this and you're on the right track. So uh, that's why he is where he is, is because that's where all the gadgetry, all the technology is. On the Rates and Barrels pod, you guys talked about how teams are now using the Hawkeye tracking system to identify how pitchers might be tipping their pitches and not just their own pitchers, but opposing pitchers as well. How does that work? I mean, tipping is just doing anything differently consistently. So, you know, in the past we've seen things like a flexed glove when they're trying to get a grip on a split finger or when they're uh, when they're trying, you know, Kevin Ginkle this year um, was uh, his forearm just had a slightly different angle when he was holding the slider in his glove before he started than when he was holding his his fastball. And so you just saw that different angle in the for in the in the forearm and he was getting blasted and he fixed that. And he's been better since. So, you know, I kind of like, uh, as an aside, I kind of like Kevin Ginkle uh, eventually in that in that bullpen to, to be the closer. But uh, all that aside, um, that now can go to any part of the delivery because we have these, uh, you know, this Hawkeye limb tracking and we can say, oh, his elbow does this weird thing on the, on the, on the fastball. It doesn't do it on a slider. Or, oh, his fingers are in this place. And it just gives people uh, a, just a heightened ability to really, and, and, and the machines can almost do some of the thinking for you where they'll just highlight a, a place where they're different in the delivery uh, based on what pitch is coming out. And uh, that just makes that everyone's job easier. So now the guy, the coach on second is like, he's just looking for looking at one little body part and he can say, oh, 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 oh you know, I'm going to put my hand on my, my hip. It's a fastball. Uh, so we're, we're heading into... Uh, stuff that's a little bit close to where the Astros were uh, before. But, uh, you know, when, when baseball is asked about this, they say, no, this is totally allowable. They're not, they're not doing it in real time. They're just, it, it's study before the game that leads them to, to figure out some tipping. But teams are spending a lot of time doing this now. And I think it's part, part of the reason why Grayson Rodriguez was sent down. Seems a bit more technically advanced than banging on a trash can lid, but the <laughs> but the the central thing is they're using machines to do the looking rather than people, right? The 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 teams exactly. were probably already reviewing video, looking for those kind of tells off opposing pitchers and their own pitchers to try to coach them out of having those tells. I think it's going to be interesting, and I wonder if down the road, Major League Baseball is going to have to look at it and limit it some way because, well, maybe they want all the offense, so who knows. But how do you, you know, it's, it's one of those things where the, the baseball has a lot of control over uh, the baseball has a lot of control over what happens in the uh, in the moment, you know, at the ballpark. And so when uh, uh, they have they have now have sort of people at the games that can go down into the into the well into the dugout and make sure that nobody's got any technology down the dugout. They can go over to the guy monitoring the video and, and can monitor the video. Um, and uh, they can make sure that those guys aren't, you know, in communication through trash cans or in any other way. So 
at in the game at the game day, they do have control. They have people on the field that are doing things um, to make sure that the, the teams aren't cheating before the game. You know, are we, are you are you saying that we like they're like I'm not saying you're saying, but like are we saying that like we'll have people monitoring what what analytics guys are doing in the front office, like sitting like looking over their their shoulder as they're like working on their computer, <laughs> you know, like um, so I I think that uh, there's a lot of difficulty in in a, this is a gray area. I think I proposed on Twitter when this debate was going on that. They major league baseball could just say you have to turn the system off in your own park when the opposing pitcher is pitching, which is a draconian solution, but it would prevent them from gathering the data they need to do that. Although maybe they can capture it off some other method. I don't know. Uh, late last week, you had an article at the athletic about players who switch teams and the difficulties they have in repeating success from the previous team context. You spoke with Marcus Semyon of the Rangers, who of course changed teams from Toronto to Texas two years ago. Uh, yeah, what did you learn about why players so often struggle after joining new teams? They press. And that's something that we know intuitively, that, you know, you're joining a new environment and you want to impress everybody and you send out a million emails on the first day and, you know, like you're, you're, you're over you overwork yourself because you're trying to prove to everybody you were worth the hire and you were, that you have something to contribute. And the way that that works in baseball, and it actually shows itself uh, statistically is that team uh, players that change teams swing more uh, with their new teams and chase pitches more with their new teams. And a lot of times that, that regresses back to, to norms after a while, but it is sort of a fact that you have to think about, when you're acquiring a player at the trade deadline, for example. Um, and uh, sometimes it even shows up, it often shows up in, in free agents. Uh, you know, Chris Davis, when he, uh, when he went and when he came to the A's, uh, he, 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 this is my first entry into it, was he was a guy who was very disciplined and all of a sudden he was swinging everything with the A's. Uh, but we've seen it with lots of other people traded the deadline and just generally that's what happens. In that same article, you discussed a surprising comp for Washington pitcher Mackenzie Gore, a Hall of Fame-bound lefty. Who was the comp, and where are the similarities? That was one that that uh, surprised me. Uh, we were talking about his fastball and his slider and his, his breaking ball, um, and he made the comp uh, between his fastball and Clayton Kershaw's, and it was a, it was a really good it was a really good dead-on uh, comp because in terms of release point movement velo uh, actually gore's got a little bit more velo uh it was a great comp but as gore himself uh laughed i just need to command the ball a lot better to be anything close to clayton kershaw there's so, always a fly yeah, in that's the probably yeah. yeah that's the big difference between them but in terms of fastballs and sliders and how they move those two are pretty similar I remember reading years ago about an effort by uh, Sabre president Vince Gennaro, and he was trying to develop a pitcher classification system that would let analysts group or bucket pitchers by certain key similarities, pitch mixes, velocities, movement characteristics. But of course, we didn't have the pitch-by-pitch metrics that we have now, and certainly not the movement metrics that are being developed. How close are we to having a Vince Gennaro-type system that groups pitchers into buckets based on skills? Uh, That's uh, sort of what I was hoping to do with with Stuff Plus is 
get at the very basic level. So Stuff Plus is a is a is a model that just looks at the physical characteristics of pitches. And so I was really hoping to get down to the very very bottom of uh, what a pitcher does, which is how does he how does he shape and and how fast are his pitches? So just the physical characteristics of their pitches. And then Location Plus is a judge of how well does he place those pitches, basically command. And so the idea is basically on the, on the bottom level, just getting, you know, if I could just know their stuff and their location, then I could know their process. And that would be a way to sort pitchers better. It would really come in handy for actually for projecting hitters, because if we could have a similar system for hitters, then you could start saying, well, this is a type... 4B hitter and he's going up against a type 9Y pitcher and the usual outcomes are as follows and the teams could use that of course for matching up and stuff like that but how close are we to seeing a similar kind of system for hitters you know i have i have thought about if if this is portable over to to hitters and we do have a plan that we're working on um what we're starting to see is a better sense a better way to break down uh a better way to break down player discipline, right? So we, we've had, you know, how often do they chase and how do they swing in the zone? However, you know, each hitter has a different heat map in the zone. So may, should you be asking how often does a hitter swing only at the pitches he can do damage with? Or should you be asking how often does a, pitter, a hitter swing at pitches with bad stuff plus or good stuff plus? So we can start to now look at uh, hitters interaction with that command and that stuff and how they make decisions. So you can have a better hitter decision uh, 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 tactic. And then I know that teams have now uh, batter process stats like vertical bat angle or bat path. So they have these scores that are scoring hitters on how nice, how, how their swing interacts with pitches, how, how much verticality is in the swing, uh, how fast like bat speed. So in, in, you know, in a few years, you might have something that's like stuff plus and location plus for hitters where stuff plus is how fast do you swing your bat and what, in what shapes do you swing your, is your swing. Uh, so you're kind of your stuff plus for hitters. And then the, the location plus for hitters would be like, do you swing at pitches in good locations? Do you put swing at sliders in the right locations? Do you swing at fastballs in the right locations? Um, so there is a, a corollary there for hitting. And I, and I think that, uh, I think both of these things will improve over the next few years as we, uh, as the data that, uh, has come in from Hawkeye, that's only three, you know, Hawkeye's only three years old. So we're start, we're still dealing with this data, um, and still just sort of, uh, figuring out what we can do with it. It's an amazing time to be looking at baseball and thinking about baseball. You know, uh, you do a terrific job of it. Uh, we're going to talk in more detail in part two about the model. So uh, just stand by for a minute. We'll go to our news and then we'll get back and we'll talk about the model. Eno Saris writes and podcasts for The Athletic. He'll be back later to talk about the model for pitcher analysis, where it came from, how it works, and how we fantasy managers can take advantage. Plus, he'll have Boons and Banes using the model's rest-of-season projections and his go-to beer and the five S's of the perfect sandwich. Coming up next, we have our Market Watch Player News Reports with Ray Murphy, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. 
In Playing Time Tomorrow roster analysis, analyst Brian Rudd looks at all five teams in the American League Central, including playing time losers in Chicago and Cleveland and a pleasant surprise in the Detroit bullpen. And analyst Dan Marcus digs deep into the National League West, including the Dodgers outfield, the Rockies closer situation, and the Giants rotation. Playing Time Tomorrow roster analysis is another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our weekly news review and update. And here with the latest is Ray Murphy, co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here, PD. We have three preeminent sluggers to discuss on this week's show. We got a couple in the American League, and two of them are in New York. Uh, let's start in the Bronx, where Aaron Judge had some good news. Chris Olson had the good news in playing time today. What was the report? Yeah, I think we just missed this list with last week's show. Per, per, PD. Yeah. Judge went on the D, on the IL last Friday. Um, he was dealing with a sprained right big toe, which occurred when he made that circus catch against what I guess was the gate to the bullpen door in Dodger Stadium last weekend. That's last right. Last week's. Yeah. So, um, you know, sprained toe coming out of that, uh, <laughs> that, that circus effort, like I said. And, you know, when you're as big as Judge, you know, fair amount of strain going on the toes holding up that whole body. So uh, maybe not such a surprise that the, uh, you know, that there, there was some fallout from that. Um, anyway, as far as treatment, he had an injection of that platelet-rich plasma um, which he told reporters this week actually worked pretty well. The swelling had gone down and he does not need to be in the dreaded walking boot. So that's good. He's getting around on his own. So that's uh, fairly promising progress as we're one week out from the incident. The, the crash into the fence, I just read about this. It wasn't that he hit the fence with his foot. He hit the fence with his body, but I guess there's a concrete shelf that the, that the whole thing was resting on. And that's what he bashed his toe onto. Oh, okay. Yeah. I guess that does make sense. Yeah. Toes and concrete generally don't mix, right? That's right. Yeah. But there's still no firm timetable for judges return. Although I read somewhere that, uh, somebody went and interviewed a respected foot doctor in their area and he said at least four weeks, which would be the end of this month, but it could be longer because the injury is on judges right foot. And of course, when he's at bat, that's his plant foot. And there's a lot of torsion on there as your foot has to turn when you're swinging the bat and it has to bear all your weight while you're transferring your weight from the back foot to the front foot. So it could be a little longer. Uh, in the meantime, Ray, who are the Yankees going to run out there in the outfield and in the batting order? Kind of everybody, I think, is the answer. I, you know, some of these guys we've been seeing in fill-in roles already on the Yankee roster. You've got Jake Bowers and Willie Calhoun who have been relative fixtures in the lineup lately, which is certainly not something anybody predicted in March, but that's been reality. Uh, the Yankees also signed Billy McKinney for additional depth in the last week. McKinney had a uh, 899 OPS and nine home runs in AAA this season. So uh, some life in the bat there, certainly nothing judge-like. Uh, obviously, all of these guys are a huge drop-off in offensive production from you know, the best hitter in the American league. So, uh, you know, downgrades are inevitable here, but these are the options the Yankees have. And none of them are great. They called up Oswaldo Cabrera to fill judges roster spot. He could also 
factor into that outfield mix. Uh, but so far, he's only played shortstops in, in shortstop in the couple of days since he's been recalled. Um, so he's another piece that allows uh, Aaron Boone to mix and match, which is what uh, a report in the Athletic suggested is that the uh, the lineup Boone's lineup card is going to be a day to day proposition, so to speak. Any hope coming from the other players that the Yankees had up until recently on the IL? Yeah, so you know, I mentioned that guys like Bowers and Calhoun had already been on the roster, and that's because the likes of Giancarlo Stanton and Josh Donaldson had both been out for a while. Both came back late last week, right about the time Judge went out. So that helps to sort of defray the loss of Judge here. Uh, as far as whether they can where they fit into the mix here. Boone said Stanton's only going to DH for now. They're not ready to put him in the outfield. Um, maybe in a couple of weeks after some ramp up, that will become a possibility. But for now, Stanton's a DH and Donaldson just gets back into that third base mix where the Yankees move around, you know, roughly five infielders across four spots with LeMayhew bouncing all over the place. So, you know, Stanton and Donaldson certainly do provide right-handed power, which is Judge's bailiwick, but neither neither one of them are a direct replacement. And uh, if you're Willie Calhoun, you have to wonder that uh, inevitably somebody's going to point out that Giancarlo Stanton is actually a better choice for the outfield than you are. And that can't be uh, reassuring for your career prospects. Uh, another slugger uh, goes on the IL. Uh, maybe somebody who could give Aaron Judge a run for his money is the best hitter in the American League. The Astros' Jordan Alvarez left the game Thursday night in the third inning with what the team called right oblique discomfort. And if Alvarez misses significant time, I think the news could be on a par with the losses of Aaron Judge and Pete Alonso, whom we'll discuss later. But what do we know about Alvarez so far? Yeah, for us fantasy players, you know, you read the recap of sort of how this unfolded and you just have to get mad, right? Um, apparently, Alvarez felt something in his oblique uh, in a in, in pregame when he was in a batting cage, but he tried to push through it. And it got worse on a couple of swings and misses because, well, the swings and misses are where you feel the oblique, right? Um, you know, as the bat, you know, carries all the way through the zone and you try to, you know, stop yourself from falling over, essentially. Um, so... After those couple of swings and misses, Alvarez left the game. He grounded out. Nothing really looked wrong on the ground out, but I guess he got back to the dugout and finally fessed up to D- Dusty Baker what he was dealing with. Um, Dusty said he'll be evaluated today on Friday, but um, while things are quiet pending the results of that examination, Baker did tell the Houston Chronicle that the team will have to, quote, regroup and see how we're going to get through this, which kind of suggests it's not just this weekend, right? Um, certainly does not sound promising for any kind of day-to-day situation. Got to think that uh, an IL stint is coming. As far as where the Astros turn, it was Corey Jolks who pinch hit and took over the DH spot um, after Alvarez left the game there. Jolks and Chaz McCormick probably are best positioned to take over the left field role there. Yanner Diaz is another who might get looked at as well. And maybe that's a place to watch what the corresponding transaction is. If Alvarez goes on the IL because Diaz is the backup catcher. So if they're going to add a third catcher to the roster, then perhaps that frees up Diaz to do some DH slash left field work. Um, But if they, uh, if they don't add another catcher, then it seems like you, Diaz probably doesn't get much of the playing time here because he's the only alternative to Martin Maldonado. 
Some welcome news for Boston fans and for Adam Duvall's fantasy managers. He'll be coming back from the IL starting tonight after spending exactly 60 days on the 60-day IL. I presume, Ray, you're up there in Boston. Adam Duvall goes straight back into the outfield, but is it going to be in center field? Yeah, I think it kind of has to be because everything else is spoken for. They've obviously got Alex Verdugo holding down right field and the leadoff spot, and he's not about to be displaced, even though he got a night off earlier this week for a lack of hustle, which is always, you know, maddening. Um, and then over in left field, it's uh, Masataka Yoshida, who's been, you know, something of a circus in the outfield, but has been fantastic at the plate. So he has to stay where he is because he can't go to DH because Justin Turner is kind of holding that job down. So unless you want to start moving three, four or five dominoes around, then it's Duval in center field in between Verdugo and Yoshida. And yes, uh, Jaron Duran is probably the guy who goes back to the bench uh, by process of elimination. Before we go on talking about Duval, I'd like your opinion on something. We saw Duval get hurt playing center field. His glove went underneath when he was diving to catch a ball. We've seen Aaron Judge get hurt running into a fence. We've seen a couple of other guys get hurt in impact sort of related things when they're playing in the defensive side of of the game. Do you think that at some point baseball teams are going to start coaching their outfielders in particular to stop running into fences and to stop diving for balls because the the cost in the game of the possibility of missing out on a catch or missing out on a, an opportunity to make a play is not sufficient to justify putting yourself at physical risk. If Aaron Judge is gone for the year, that's a massive blow. I mean, it's a killer blow to the Yankees. Would the Yankees be better served to say, listen, if you see the ball's going to be close to the fence, just play it on the bounce off the fence. We'll live with it because, like I said, If you make the play, good. You save us maybe a run in that game. If you don't make the play and crash into the fence and break your toe, maybe you miss six weeks and we lose a lot more games. Yeah, there's probably a lot of of shades of gray to those kinds of decisions. And judges in particular is a good example for a lot of reasons. Not only was it a road game in Dodger Stadium, but it's a road game in an interleague park where the Yankees only go to like every six years. It's not a case where Judge is at all familiar with that particular fence or how to track a ball on the warning track in that particular yard. So yeah, maybe there's some guidance that you can tell Judge to take it a little easy on in that situation next time it happens. Duvall was a little bit different. First of all, Duvall's not Aaron Judge in term, you know, he was red hot when he got hurt in I think it was the third week of the season, but he's not Aaron Judge over the course of 162 games. But you know, a little bit of a different circumstance if I remember correctly, he was coming in on a, you know, short line drive pop-up kind of thing and, you know, dove forward essentially and rolled rolled over his wrist so not a fence situation and i think it was at home too but you know the flip side of that or the criticism there is i mean duvall's not really a center fielder and we all know that one of the things about center field that's very different than left and right is the ball hit directly at you whether you're charging it or whether it's over your head the you know any ball that's hit right at you in left or right field is by definition got some curve on it, but the balls that are hit right back up the middle, you know, charging dead straight in is kind of a different thing. So maybe Duvall's a little out of position and that's a kind of dive that he doesn't have to make regularly. So, but, you know, I guess my overall point is 
I think it's easy for us to sit here and say, you know, Aaron Judge, just go 90% after that ball. And, you know, I don't want you crashing into the fence. But I think these guys are competitive and these guys maybe don't necessarily have that level of moderation in the moment. And I mean, <laughs> we could go further down this rabbit hole. And I'm reminded of that ridiculous tumble that Royce Lewis took this week, um, you know, stumbling over first base and, right. you know, going, you know, head over tea kettle, so to speak. And it you know, literally looked like he could have snapped his spine. Right. And you're like, Oh, please don't do that. But you know, when you're, when you're going that hard, these things happen. And I'm not sure you can just tell these guys not to go that hard because it's the way they've been brought up to play the game forever. And modulating that is probably a lot more difficult than it sounds, even though it sounds like a good idea to you and me. I think the parallel is running backs in the NFL. For years, they were told, you know, if you're near the sideline, veer into the field, take the hit, dish out a hit, be, be a bit, be a man. And all of a sudden the, the team started looking at this and they're saying, you know, them taking that last hit with a guy holding onto their leg is where we're losing $6 million a year of running back talent. And they started coaching all the guys who are carrying the ball. If, if you're about to get hit at the sideline, step out of bounds because you save yourself the hit. And I think at some point, somebody in baseball is going to figure out that, you know, how much money they're losing in salaries to these guys who are getting hurt, make, trying to make plays that they're really not that valuable to make, I guess. Uh, Chris Olson covered the return of Adam Duval in playing time today at BaseballHQ.com, and his analysis included that Jaron Duran could find himself the odd man out. Yeah, I think he has to be because he's gone cold after a hot start. Um, you know, he was he was a disappointment last year. You know, got the call shortly after Duval got hurt, and for a couple of weeks there, looked really, really good. Um, but now, after now in the last three weeks, he's hitting a buck fifty-eight with no home runs, one run scored, four RBIs, um, negative base performance value. So, you know, in the in the near term, he's done nothing to demonstrate that he deserves an extended opportunity. He may stick on the roster as the fourth or fifth outfielder and um, be a you know, at least a backup to Duvall in center field, especially if they're going to have to ease Duvall back with a few days off here and there. But, you know, I went through the Yoshida, Verdugo, Justin Turner, domino effect earlier. If you wanted to get all those guys in the lineup, the way that in order to keep Duran, the way you could do it would be to bench Tristan Casas at first base and put Turner over there and free up DH for Yoshida and then get Duval over to left field. You could do all of that, but you know, while Tristan Casas hasn't been great, he's shown more signs of life in the last few weeks than Duran has. So I don't think we're going to see much of that. Signs of life. I like that. Uh, they had Duval batting fifth. Am I correct in assuming he's going to go back into that batting order slot? Yeah. Ver Alex Cora has been, you know, tinkering with the lineup a little bit um, lately, trying to figure out different combinations, but that seems like the best place where Duvall fits. Um, you know, we've seen Kike Hernandez there, Rob Refsnyder, Casas and Yoshida, and a lot of Duran. Um, but I would imagine that this gets the opening day lineup, kind of in the entire opening day lineup back on the field and probably in the same configuration with Duvall batting fifth. Another diversion from the Adam Duvall story. We talk about the fantasy value of batting order slots, but really how important is it in the grand scheme? 
I mean, it's important both, we, we, we often make the reference to every spot in the order from top to bottom being worth about 15 to 20 plate appearances a year, right? Um, but you know, you can translate the plate appearances to actual, you know, the, the, our, our actual fantasy counting stats, and you can look at runs in RBIs. And if you look across all of baseball, the average third place hitter has 34 runs and 36 RBIs so far. You go down the cleanup, and it's 33 and 37. So not much difference there, but then you get down to fifth and it's 28 and 28 and sixth is 29 and 31. So, you know, as you move three lineup spots there from like third to sixth, it's an, it's an appreciable difference. And of, of course that has to do with not just the overall plate appearances, but the relatively good on base percentages of the guys in front of you and the chances you have of coming up with, uh, you know, with guys on base. And then conversely, if you're batting sixth, even if you're getting on base at a good clip, you're relying on the seven, eight, nine batters to drive you in, which is not always a great proposition. in at least some of our lineups out there. Also, if you're kind of below the fifth spot or maybe even the fourth spot, um, you have to worry about that the guys in the three and four spots are driving in all the guys who were on base. So you're coming up with fewer opportunities. And I believe I've seen research to that effect. So that's something else to keep in mind. But Adam Duvall is a, a good power hitter. He's going to get his home runs. He's going to get his RBIs in that lineup. I think it's, it's something that uh, is not worth worrying about in the great scheme. But as a, as a detail that you're thinking about, it's something to think about. Let's move over to the American League pitchers. Uh, the Facts and Fluke Spotlight at BaseballHQ.com is a weekly deep dive, a research piece about a specific player. And this week, our starting pitcher columnist, Stephen Nick Rand, took over the spotlight and shone it on a surprising early Cy Young contender, Minnesota right-hander Joe Ryan. What are the highlights from Stephen's analysis? Yeah, you. I know you and I have talked about these fact and fluke spotlight pieces before. We've both written them in the recent past. They're super fun to write, and I haven't written one yet this year, but they're definitely one of my favorite features to see on the site and actually just consume as a reader. So when I see that, uh, you know, the uh, exemplary Mr. Nick Rand has a breakdown of a starting pitcher, that's uh, that, uh, that becomes immediate appointment reading for me. And uh, this Joe Ryan treatment was just... It, lived up to those expectations. Um, as far as what he found, you know, Ryan's been kind of overlooked, uh, you know, pitching in Minnesota, small market guy, never a top prospect, not like the Ellie Dela Cruz hype or anything like that when he came to the majors. Right. Um, and has always been sort of hampered or limited by a lack of secondary pitches. In fact, the Rays who, you know, are such notorious, notoriously good judges of talent traded him away. Um, probably for that reason. And in terms of fantasy value, Ryan hasn't done anything spectacular yet. Um, although he did kind of wet our appetites a little bit last year uh, with a, uh, a $13 season, although the skills weren't totally up to snuff there. Um, last year, he had a 3.55 ERA that was backed by an expected ERA of 4.21. So it wasn't like he was primed as a breakout candidate, but that's what we have. Yeah, I found it odd when I was looking at it that uh, in 2021 he had a four ERA and a and an xERA under that, and in 2022 the the thing just flipped over. It was a lower ERA and a higher xERA, so uh, a little bit hard to make sense out of it because there's so many skills and performance contradictions on Ryan, but he seems to definitely, for whatever reason, turn it around this year. And uh, why? 
yeah, he's been absolutely awesome this year. He's got a two two seventy six ERA, which is still a little bit out in front of his expected ERA, which is about three fifty eight. Uh, but a sub one WHIP, which is always eye catching, over seventy two innings so far this year. Um, his strikeouts and walks are kind of at the, back to twenty twenty one levels, which are his career best. And be, you know, maybe best of all, he's bumped up his ground ball rate to thirty eight percent, which is up from. Uh, uh, you know, which erases a kind of a decided fly ball tilt he had the last couple of years. Um, and sum that all together, and you, it's a it's a $28 season so far, which is fourth in, the, fourth in baseball, I think, putting him ahead of the likes of Spencer Strider, Kevin Gossman, et, et cetera. And what does Steven attribute the turnaround and the elite performance? What's the source? What's changed? Well, it seems like like Ryan went to the went to the lab, so to speak, in the offseason. He went to driveline um, and came out of there with a, a new split figure fastball and a sweeper, which of course it seems like everybody's throwing a sweeper now, right? Um, but as is often the case, adding a new pitch is good, but what is just as good or sometimes better is getting rid of your bad pitches, right? So uh, Ryan had featured an ineffective changeup in the past, which he is now almost totally abandoned and he reworked his slider, which wasn't great into this sweeper, which um, is still kind of a work in progress. But the, uh, that split figure fastball that I mentioned that he introduced has been really good. Uh, he's throwing that 28% of the time and batters are only hitting 169 against it. So uh, it's a, uh, it, it's a reworked arsenal that, you know, as we always like to see, He's throwing more of his best pitches more and not throwing the pitches that got him in trouble the most. That all sounds good for Ryan's fantasy managers, but before I engrave his name on the Baseball HQ Radio Fantasy Cy Young plaque, I noticed that Stephen had a couple of caveats. Yeah, there are a couple of reasons to think that maybe this is not Ryan's permanent new level going forward. The first one is kind of, I don't want to say philosophical, but kind of philosophical is that you know, with only two impactful pitches, that's kind of a tough way to make a living as a starting pitcher. You really like to see three plus effective offerings, especially to allow him to maintain his effectiveness against both righties and lefties and not be prone to uh, platoon splits. That sweeper in particular is kind of a tough pitch to make work f- with um, opposite handed batters. That's not something that's really going to get him um, get lefties out that consistently, which is why that that splitter is so important. Um, but the sweet, you know, polishing up that sweeper is probably, you know, that pitch, as I said, is a work in progress. So it's probably the best path to stabilizing overall here. The second concern um, is workload and that Ryan has never thrown 150 innings in a season uh, professionally, not just in the majors. And he's already at 72 this year. So we're not, you know, we're still a month out from the all-star break, uh, you know, maybe three or four weeks out from the the actual midpoint of the season. So he's on track for, you know, every bit of 180, 190 innings, which would be a peak for him. Mind you, he is a little older and sometimes you get stronger as you get older and you kind of expect an increase in innings. I noticed that, uh, the discussion of having only two impact pitches and my first thought was he's just ahead of Spencer Strider, you said, and, uh, Kevin Gosman, and they're both pretty successful two pitch pitchers. I mean, I've got Gosman on a few rosters. And so I just happen to know that he's 90% fastballs and splits and there's a, like, and- a few changeups here and there. Yeah, and if, and if your two pitches are 
that good, you can get away with that. Um, I think you know, we're not sure yet that the uh, fastball split combo is going to is going to put Ryan in sort of Kevin Gosman's elite arsenal territory there. Yeah, especially as it's new, you still have to fine tune it and get it to the point where a guy like Gosman, who's been throwing it for years, probably has a really good feel for the pitch, which is something when it's new to you, you might not. Our bullpens analyst, Doug Dennis, had a solid column this week. I really liked it. He was looking at reliever skill sets for the single month of May, although there's some overall in the column as well. So we get lots of elite relievers with elite skills and elite results, but there's one exception, Seattle right-hander Matt Brash. Yeah, it's always great when you go down these lists and you can read them and be like, yep, he's really good. Yep, he's really good. Yep, he's really good. Oh, wait, what do we have here? And in the case of Matt Brash, he kind of jumps out because on a list of pitchers, relievers who have been really good, both in terms of skills and results. Brash is hanging out there with skills that belong in that elite category, but a 415 ERA and a 185 whip in May, um, which are both rough, which is hard to do with a 38% strikeout rate and a K minus BB percentage of 30%, which is still elite. Um, And his skills in April were just as good. It wasn't a May flash in the pan. Um, but that in May, he had a 525 ERA and a 150 whip. So two straight months, sure, small sample size, but you know it starts to grow month over month that he's been getting just tagged, even though his stuff is elite. So Doug says eventually the skills have to win out because Doug, Doug Redley points out if you have a 30% K minus BB, you know, you're not supposed to hang out, hang out in the four plus ERA range. That doesn't happen. So how did it happen? It wasn't home runs because his May his home run per nine in May was only 0.9. And for the year, it's only 0.4. He's only given up one home run all year. So none in April, one in May. Not a big deal there. And he's not exactly giving up a lot of hard contact. I looked at uh, Baseball Savant and the sliders are mostly way over to the right in the red, 98th, 99th percentile in barrels prevented, 98th, 99th in hard hit. So... What's going on here? Yeah, it's wild because it's not hard contact, but it is him getting BABIP to death. In April, his BABIP against was 519. And in May, it went up, which is you know, seems impossible. <laughs> yeah, what the hell? <laughs> Especially because you say he's not giving up hard contact. It's not line drives all over the diamond. So I have to start asking questions like, are the Mariners fielders wearing their gloves when Brash is pitching? You know, it's it really does start to kind of look like that. And do um, they have just, them on the right way, front to back? Right? Are they are they <laughs> on, on the right hands? hand? Yeah. Like, what, what are we doing here? Because um, literally every ball that get, it, you know, they're not going over the fence. They're not line drives. So we've got line dr- we've got fly balls and ground balls, which should get turned into outs by you know professional defenses at a reasonable percentage of the time that just aren't so it's either terrible fielding or it's terrible luck but either way it kind of has to get better which brings us back to doug's original conclusion which was when it comes to matt brash bet on the skills not the current era yeah i noticed that the line drive rate he had in april was like 19 percent. i think league averages around 20 and his hard contact 33 percent, 29 percent in may so around 30 and like Jordan Romano's 31%, uh, David Bednar, who's on Doug's list of super elite closers, 31% career hard hit rate. So 
he's not giving up hard contact. And in fact, with the 30% strikeout rate, he's not giving up that much contact at all. And I wonder if we had a, a look at the Seattle game film or whether we'd see a million dunkers and bleeders and, you know, those swinging bunts and that kind of stuff. Cause he does have fairly overpowering stuff. And sometimes that's the kind of contact you get where a guy swings with all his might and nubs it 25 feet up the third baseline. And, you know, nobody can get to it in the time when the guy just gets over to first base and then everything else seems to be right. So it seems like this might present a buying opportunity from a frustrated brash manager who just looks at the results. And I think he could be in a lot of free agent pools. I don't think there's going to be saves though. No, I don't think so either. Um, unless something happens behind him in the bullpen, the policy Walter or something like that. Um, and I, but I agree with you that it's still a buying opportunity for holds for, you know, he's still working in pretty high leverage roles. So you can pick up the wins, the, the vulture wins, the holds, if you want them. And certainly the strikeouts and bunches, you know, the, the K rate is elite. We know he's got the stuff to support that. And I mean, if there's a plus side to getting bleeded and dunked to death, like he is, it almost looks like from Brash's strikeout rates that he's kind of saying to himself, well, apparently I'm just going to have to strike <laughs> everybody out myself. myself. <laughs> <laughs> and, but you know what? He's got, he's got the stuff to do that. So that's actually okay. <laughs> it reminds me of the Jim Bouton story when he, in ball four, when he said he, he, when he was a kid, he got so tired of the, of his fielders making errors that he would like shove them out of the way to make the play himself <laughs> at, every time he could. And uh, of course it went over great with the other parents, I suppose, but uh, guys are competitive. <laughs> Let's go over to the National League and we mentioned one New York slugger in our American League segment. Let's turn to another. Pete Alonso of the Mets was hit on the left wrist by a 97 mile an hour Charlie Morton fastball in a game on Wednesday. Uh, Phil Hurts on the story for playing time today. Uh, who knew Charlie Morton could throw a ball 97 miles an hour, but uh, what's the latest on Pete Alonso? The news here doesn't seem much better than it was with Judge and Alvarez and I guess you know, in addition to losing three sluggers, I guess the other common element here is is some amount of ambiguity. Um, in Alonzo's case, the, the the first news we got seemed good that the x-rays came out back clean after the game. So Alonzo was listed as day-to-day. -day, but then on Thursday, the Mets sent him for a CT scan, and they got those results. And then they said, oh, well, will we... You know, they must see something there because they need an MRI. Um, so he's now landed on the IL. Uh, he's out for at least 10 days. We've reduced his playing time by 5% while we watch for something more conclusive that, may, you know, anything from it's just a bruise and he needs 10 days to, you know, they've, you know, the more refined imaging that they kept ordering. Uh, you know, you know how it goes. Like my great grandmother used to say, when you go to the doctors, if you keep talking to enough doctors, eventually they're going to find something. So, you know, he's certainly talked to a lot of that, a lot of doctors this week, and we'll, uh, have to wait for something definitive about what they have or have not found. Certainly a major blow for the Mets and for fantasy managers. I read somewhere, I think it might've been at the athletic that, uh, Alonzo has a bit of a history of these hand injuries from being hit by pitch dating back to when he was uh, playing at the university of Florida, but somebody has got to play first base and take Alonzo's spot in the lineup. Who's picking up the playing time? On Thursday, it was Mark Vientos, the rookie who's been, had been kind of added to the roster for a little bit of pop, but, uh, you know, trying to invigorate that Mets lineup, but, 
uh, with first base and DH clogged up, he wasn't getting a ton of playing time. Uh, so we've allocated him for the short term into Alonso's lost playing time. Um, is he a long, is he a longer term solution if Alonso's out for a while? He's going to have to do better than six for thirty seven, which is what he's been since he was called up. So you know we'll see if regular playing time is the elixir that gets him to sort of unlock the bat that the Mets thought they were calling up. But they're uh, you know it, it may very well be that if Alonso was out for a while and Vientos doesn't get going soon, the Mets are going to look for other alternatives. Any speculative fantasy opportunities in those alternatives? Nothing jumps out on the current Mets bench, at least. You know, there's Daniel Vogelback who gets some work at DH, and you could hand him a first base glove, and he could, you know, probably look like a Mariners fielder with it. Um, but um, if you look past Vogelbach, there's you know DJ Stewart is a one ba- uh, a uh, first base prospect in the Mets org. He's got an 884 OPS at AAA, but he's 29 and past prospect status and. Probably not. I haven't checked, but probably not on the 40-man roster. So all kinds of hurdles there. Um, in 622 major league plate appearances, he's got a 727 OPS. So not exactly a uh, you know strong pedigree. Ronnie Mauricio is a uh, utility man who could get called up and allow the Mets to rejigger the overall infield if they wanted to. He's hitting 329 in AAA with eight home runs and nine stolen bases. So maybe there's something there they could figure out. Um, you know, maybe swing Brett Davey over to first base or something like that. Um, certainly if the bar for first baseman, um, is you have to be better than Vogelbach over there, then I think there are probably about 12 other guys on the Mets roster who can meet that definition and maybe a couple of pitchers too. (laughs) Yeah. And probably a few fans. I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be surprised. I guess it's wait and see for now. Um, in the speculator column, analyst Ryan Bloomfield at BaseballHQ.com is back playing around with that QBAB metric. And before we talk about the column, maybe you could explain QBAB to listeners who might not be familiar. Yeah, so QBAB is uh, something that our research team whipped up a couple of years ago. And I love it because it translates some of the newer StatCast metrics, namely exit velocity and launch angle, into quick grade ratings where we tear out the exit velocity, the launch angle, and then the the variability of those into letter grades. So you get grades like AAA and ABB and ACA and things like that, that summarize, you know, at a quick glance, the hitter's launch angle, which is of course how often they, you know, hit the ball in the sweet spot to get the ball up in the air and lift it. And the exit velocity, which of course is how hard they hit it. And then the third component is how consistently they do those things, which is, you know, when you think about it for three letter grades, that's kind of a lot of what you need to know in a very quick shorthand, which is great. It sure is, especially the uh, variability part. You know, uh, Ariel Cohen, whom we both know, uh, has introduced measures of variability into his projections. I think it's a really important component, and it's good that that the uh, researchers at Baseball HQ figured out a way to do that. Uh, one of the National Leaguers Ryan highlighted was a familiar name. D.H.J.D. Martinez of the Dodgers is keeping some impressive company at the very top of the QBAB leaderboard. Yeah, uh, J.D. Martinez uh, could be mistaken for Ponce de Leon at this point with the the uh, resurgence he's having in L.A. Um, he was one of only two guys in Ryan's research with a uh, a perfect AAA QBAB score, the other one being uh, Aaron Judge, who, of course, we've talked about enough on this show already. Uh, Mike Trout was almost there. I think he was an AA and then a B for the variability metric. Um, Martinez, of course, is getting into his upper 30s and 
after um, a disappointing final season in Boston last year when he only hit 16 home runs. He's already got 14 this year, so bouncing back very nicely. Uh, his raw power metrics are all the way back in line with his peak of 2017-2018, which were 40 home run, 300 batting average seasons for him. He's 96th percentile in barrel rate, 93rd in hard, hard hit rate. His expected slugging percentage is 99th percentile, clearly just top of the league. And of course, not only is he, by all those metrics, bashing the ball, but it, he's doing that in the middle of an excellent lineup where his elite power is generating elite counting stats and he's surrounded by guys who get on base in front of him. And like we were talking about two or three minutes ago, people behind him driving him in, et cetera. So, you know, with his 276 batting average that's backed by a you know expected batting average of 301, which you don't see that often, um, it's really a renaissance season for him. It looks like a pretty solid expected batting average for someone's like uh, Martinez, who has the contact issues, really low scores on strikeouts and walks and whiffs and that kind of stuff. But some players are like that. You know, you, you trade the contact for the quality of contact, basically. And this is what the uh, QBAB metric brings out. Yeah, you're going to have to suffer along with a few strikeouts, which reduces the counting stats. But boy, when he gets his contact, you got to be happy that he does because he really drives the ball. Let's finish up with the National League pitchers, Ray. In one of Baseball HQ's regular facts and flukes, performance analysis and validation columns this week, analyst Greg Pyron looked at five National Leaguers, and one of them was Milwaukee right-handed starter Corbin Burns. And Burns certainly hasn't been what was expected from a guy. I think his ADP was 18, so second round. ERA and XERA are both way up from past years. His walks minus strikeouts is way down. Is Greg's conclusion that this 2023 sag is a fact or a fluke? So far, Greg says it's a fact and something to be concerned about, um, be, mostly because there's been some skill slippage there. You alluded to some of it, but his, uh, his strikeout rate in particular is down and the accompanying metric we usually look look at that is swinging strike rate how often he's getting swings and misses both of those are down although the uh you know, the 27 percent swing swing strike rate is still pretty good um so maybe there's some hope for recovery there but velocity is of course another component of that and that's been kind of ticking down a little bit year over year for burns um and now it's another mile per hour down from last year which is of course down for 2021 and you know not an unusual pattern for a veteran pitcher to see velocity kind of ebbing a little bit um as age and workload accumulate but what's really doing burns in is the walks his walk rate is soared he's you know when he's right he's a pinpoint control guy um and our expected walk metric says that you know the walks have been up but they could be even worse um so he's his ball percentage is up. He's throwing more, you know, more balls relative to strikes than he has in the past. So, you know, he's walking more guys. He's getting in trouble with the walks, and it seems like he divert, he deserves that. And then if you're walking more guys, kind of the last thing you want to see is more fly balls, which is also what we're seeing some from Burns. So, a little bit of loss of strikeout rate, strikeouts turning into walks, ground balls turning into fly balls. None of that's really what you want to see. And he hasn't changed his pitch mix in any meaningful way. 
uh, Greg reported. But the swinging strike rates are all down, as you mentioned. His cutter has seen ground balls decrease, as you mentioned. It's not a reassuring portrait. Also not a reassuring portrait, uh, the Dodgers placed right-hander Noah Syndergaard on the 15-day IL with a blister on his right index finger. It's amazing how many blisters show up in that Dodgers rotation. The, it's the latest in a string of pitcher injuries in L.A. Mark Gannon covering this story for Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com. It's an injury, but it might solve a kind of a little problem the Dodgers might have been having. Short-term problem, at least. Uh, we've talked, I think, you know, a few times about the sort of revolving door of the Dodger rotation. Um, Syndergaard, you know, blister or not, has you know, really just pitched himself out of that rotation. He's been really rough with a 716 ERA, a 145 whip. His K minus BB percentage of 12. You know, none of this is the mighty Thor of all of old or anything like that. So now he gets on the IL. I think I even saw Dave Roberts sort of say the quiet part out loud when he said that Syndergaard would be out for at least a couple of weeks for quote a reset, which makes it sound like this is as much about the blister as much as it's about the 716 ERA. Um, so, but the reason they have the uh, the luxury of doing that is that the rest of the Dodger rotation is actually rounding back to health. Bobby Miller has been great. You know, their most recent call up, the prospect um, has a 106 ERA, uh, 0.76 WHIP. So now that you know, any anytime you burst out to the majors with a 106 ERA, you sort of lock up a rotation spot for the foreseeable future. So he's there. Clayton Kershaw's there. For until his back acts up, Tony Gonsolin's got a 221 ERA and a sub one whip, so he's locked in. Michael Grove hasn't been great, but you know, better than Syndergaard. Um, and of course, is you know, younger and maybe still figuring things out, so some upside there. Um, and Julio Urias is coming back soon, uh, to kind of take that Syndergaard turn, so that's how they're able to afford to kind of do the you know, I'm picturing the uh, the meme of Homer Simpson backing into the hedges, backing away from the radioactive Noah Syndergaard. So we'll see if they can fix Syndergaard in the bullpen or in a rehab stint or something like that and get him to the point where he can contribute. But the Dodgers have uh, have enough, enough depth and options now that they can just tell Thor to go find his superhero stuff and don't come back until you do. Don't come back without the hammer. Uh, thanks, Ray. Appreciate it. Talk to you next week. Thank you, PD. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have part two of our feature expert interview with Eno Saris. But let me first highlight another great item on the Baseball HQ site right now. In this week's Facts and Fluke Spotlight, analyst Stephen Nickran takes the deep dive into Minnesota right-hander and early Cy Young candidate Joe Ryan. And in this week's Bullpen Buyer's Guide, analyst Doug Dennis reviews the best skill sets in bullpens across the game for May. The Facts and Fluke Spotlight and the Bullpen Buyer's Guide, two more great resources online every week at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Eno Saris, writer and podcaster at The Athletic. Eno, welcome back to part two. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here with Eno Saris. From The Athletic and Eno, one of your hallmark achievements was working with a team of smart analysts and coders and engineers and smart guys 
to develop the three-part model for assessing and predicting pitcher performance. First of all, what motivated you and your colleagues to start developing this tool at all? In 2008, uh, an analyst on, on a site called Baseball Analyst named Jeremy Greenhouse, uh, he's now in the R&D department for the Cubs, wrote a piece called On That Stuff. And he just used what we had at the time, the best data we had at the time in terms of movement and velocity on pitches to try to uh, just get to how good a pitcher's stuff was. And that was a long time ago, but I, ever since then, I've been working that beat <laughs> in different ways. I've, I've tried to look at what makes a slider good and what makes a curveball good. And I've broken down each of these uh, pitches into their, into their separate types and tried to try to figure it out. Harry Pavlidis over at, at Baseball for Sexes, what, what makes a changeup good? Um, and so we've been piecing together all of these things. But recently there's been an advent in a, in a thing called machine learning, which um, can kind of piece those things together in a much more sophisticated and larger way. Um, what I mean is like, I can look at sliders and say, ooh, velo is good and drop is good. And so, hey, anybody who throws a hard slider with good drop, that's good. Um, what machine learning can do is say, well, velo is good here. Sometimes it's more velo is good. Sometimes less velo is good. Sometimes more drop is good. Sometimes less drop is good. What about the release point? Can we bring the release point in? Release point, what does that release point do to that? What does uh, the horizontal release point, vertical release point do? What does the spin do? What does the spin axis do? And so it can take all of these different things and kind of put them together and judge their interaction um, and, and tell us a little bit more. So one of the things that came out of this was that release point is hugely important. Uh, release point um, determines a lot because if you think about it, the hitter is queuing in on the release point and all movement comes from that release point. And so any type of unexpected movement from that release point, anybody who throws over the top but has a great sinker like Clay Holmes, that's great. Anybody who throws from the side but has a little bit of ride like Paul Seawald, that's great because it's upsetting the hitter's notion of, I see this release point, this is the movement I expect. And so, you know, putting these things together in a way, that's stuff plus. And I, one thing that upsets me is that I can't tell people exactly, oh, this is how you scout it yourself. It's a little bit black box. I don't like that. I would rather, I've always been in the business of being like, here, here's my process. You can follow it too. Um, but it does tell us a lot. And so if you're ever just scouting a player, if you're just watching a, a pitcher, if they are over the top and have a great sinker, you know, if they do do something that's a little bit weird, a little bit different, if they do have horizontal movement you've never seen or or sink you've never seen, like for example, Yenier Cano, um, you know, is a is a setup guy for the for the um, Orioles. He has uh, more sink from uh, an, a more over the top release point than anybody else in baseball. And my model actually is struggling with him because he's so unique and it doesn't have a good number on him. But if you're watching with your eyes and you say, wow, this guy, that looks like a sidearm sinker, but he's not a sidearmer. That's like you, the bell should go off. You should say, this guy's good. So there are still takeaways we can have from it. But generally, Stuff Plus adds up release point, velocity, spin, spin axis, all this stuff, and adds it up in a way that makes it uh, much easier to like, oh, this guy's got a great slider. Look at that. 100, 120 Stuff Plus. I like this guy. 
In a Fangraphs Primer article, this is a few years ago, about Stuff Plus and Location Plus and Pitching Plus, your colleague Owen McGratton said, the pitcher's secondary pitches aren't measured against a fixed standard like our, you know, we have the control metric, which is strikeouts minus walks, or, and it's got to be 20% or better or whatever. But instead, you measure the pitcher's secondary pitchers against his own primary fastball. Why a relative measure like that rather than against a fixed standard? Well, the easy answer is it made the model better. <laughs> so uh, in terms of statistics, it was the better way to go. But I think, uh, you know, I had a piece today out on The Athletic about why there's so many strikeouts in the game. And, um, it, and it turns out that, um, you know, big piece of this is uh, batters are timing to the fastball. They still time to the fastball. They start their swing so they can hit the fastball. And uh, so if they start their swing to hit the fastball, they, they identify a certain type of movement from that fastball, then it makes sense that everything then is a reaction to that. So they, they are trying to time to the fastball. Once they time to the fastball, they have to slow down if it's a slider. They have to react if it's the curveball. They have to do all sorts of other things. But they the, sli- the fastball is still the most thrown pitch in baseball. So the process for batters is, can I hit the fastball? How do I hit the fastball? And everything else is defined off of that. You said in an article at The Athletic that Red starter Graham Ashcraft is higher on the Stuff Plus leaderboard than we might think, given a guy who has a 664 ERA and a 160 whip. What does Ashcraft's fifth place slot on that Stuff Plus leaderboard tell us about the metric? It tells us that it is not a one-stop shopping to that tells us everything about a pitcher. And in particular, uh, what it tells us is that... Uh, you know, for example, Stuff Plus is really strong with relievers because relievers, you know, they go one inning and it's about how hard they throw and it's about how much movement they have and they don't have to think about the fifth inning, right? <laughs> they have one inning they have to dominate. What I see with Graham Ashcraft is if he was a reliever right now, he'd be one of the best closers in the game because he has a 97-mile-an-hour cutter and a, a hard sweeper, like a, a high 80 sweeper, real nice slider. Um, those two pitches rate really well by Stuff Plus. He has great stuff. What he doesn't have is a great home park. That's the, the second best hitters park in the league. And what he doesn't have is a third or fourth or fifth pitch. <laughs> and so when you watch a Graham Ashcraft start, you will see four innings of domination. You'll see three or four innings of domination. And then you will see an implosion. And you will see an implosion the likes of which you rarely see in other places. i remember when the kingdom went down a a great great day in baseball actually but yeah i know i know exactly what you mean so why don't the reds convert ashcraft into a reliever or at least try to develop some other uh, auxiliary pitches he had a curveball before uh i think he should return to that uh i would be very excited to see him throw even a kind of uh not great by stuff plus curveball that he could land in the zone because I think if he just had, even if it was like 78, you know, and and not the greatest movement in the world, I think it would just create another wrinkle for the hitter where they're like, you know, especially if he could just get a strike out of it, right? If he could just land a 70-mile curveball, because they might say, oh, curveball, I'm not going to swing, all right? Oh, now it's one, now it's 0-1, right? That's that's what he needs. He just needs something that he can command that's different from what he has. And I think if it if it had a large velocity difference, I think that'd be great. Um, so uh, you know, I think that um, 
uh, I, I think that uh, their stuff loss is a really powerful tool. It's really great for scouting that, but uh, when it comes to starters, there's pitchability feel. This is what Max Scherzer tells me all the time about stuff. Plus. There's pitchability, there's feel, there's, uh, there's how an arsenal works all together. I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that um, this model has figured it all out. I know that there's a lot of interest in sequencing pitches and how best to optimize not just the mix of pitches, but the order that they get thrown in, how one sets up the next, uh, a lot of stuff about arm position and stuff like that. I can see how StatCast type data on pitch movement leads more or less inexorably to a stuff metric, but the location plus metric is tied to how close the pitch is to the pitcher's intended target. And that makes me wonder, how does the location plus mechanism know where the pitcher intended that pitch to go? It does not. Uh, but what I, I used to have a, a stat called Command Plus, um, and that one did attempt to, decide, attempt to know where the pitch was going to go by looking at scouting reports, looking at what the pitcher has done in the past, looking at the, the catcher's target and putting it all together. But the light bulb went on for us uh, when we were working on this, when we used Command Plus and we used Location Plus, and there was no difference in terms of how predictive the model was. And so uh, Location Plus just asks, did you throw it to good places? <laughs> you know, that's it. It's, a, it's, it's, it's determined by count and by pitch type. So, you know, if it's a 2-0 count and you're trying to throw a fastball, did you throw it to a good place? That's all Location Plus asks. It, didn't, it doesn't ask you know, did you intend to? And I think the reason that there's no difference is that mostly pitchers want to throw pitches to the, to good places, <laughs> you know? So like, uh, you know, asking them to, to, to try to figure out intent, uh, does help you in certain in, in training environments and stuff like that, but it's, it's, uh, impractical when it comes to games and it doesn't add a lot of information. So the, the good target is defined by looking at game situation count and stuff like that and where a lot of effective pitches end up in those situations and then match them in basically yeah yeah so you can imagine that the uh, heat map for where a fastball is good is very different on 3-0 than when it's 0-2 yeah you know? so so that's one of the basic things is you know you don't want to be throwing a fastball anywhere near the middle in 0-2 and you can get a lot closer to the middle in 3-0 and, and have it be a good fastball. So just by accounting for count and pitch type, um, you know, it becomes a more sophisticated version of something like zone percentage. There's also a metric called pitching plus, which kind of combines stuff plus and location plus into an overall metric for pitcher performance. And those of us who have been around for a while, and I date back to when radar guns were really something, so we assume when we see a combined metric, we assume it's got to be some kind of weighted average. But pitching plus is not a weighted average. What is it? It's a different thing. So it may change a little bit in the future, but one for one is thing we didn't uh, platoon uh, adjust stuff plus. So you may find that some lefties um, don't have uh, lefties are a little bit uh, have short shrift and stuff plus. But the reason we thought was we'd put platoon uh, splits into pitching plus. And so um Pitching Plus basically looks at elements of Stuff Plus and the elements of Location Plus and is a whole new model that puts them all together again uh, as a third model. So it's basically a third model that adds uh, some other aspects. And 
Um, you know, I, I like the idea that it's a third model because it could have, it could eventually tell you something like, is slider command more important than curveball command? Uh, is slider command maybe one of the most important things in the game? And so if you have a guy with a high stuff plus slider with low location plus, is that a less valuable pitch than somebody who has a high, that has a lower slider uh, stuff plus and a higher location plus, you know what I'm saying? So yep. uh, it can kind of, it can kind of make decisions about arsenal. So I feel, I still like it long-term. We may put platoon uh, adjusting into stuff plus because I don't want lefties to get short shrift, you know? So, uh, you know, it's a, it's going to change over time. We're always working on it. One thing we want to do is altitude adjust it because uh, all the pitchers and cores have bad stuff plus because the altitude doesn't let their pitches move as much. Yeah, that makes sense. And there are atmospheric things built into some of the forecasting models. Like, uh, I think Derek Cardi's uh, forecasts include a lot of weather related kind of stuff. It's temperature pretty stuff. important. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty important. I noticed that most of the values on all three of your leaderboards cluster pretty closely around 100. But I think I remember you saying on the Rates and Barrels pod, or maybe when you presented at First Pitch Arizona, that the 100 value isn't league average like an index. What does the 100 value on the scale represent, and how do the other values scale from it? Scaling is really difficult, and and, and um, I hate that we're, we're making some of the mistakes. It's just how things go. It's just how research goes, but... You know, you think of war, wins above replacement, and how there's like different models and different scalings maybe. And and so, you know, there's confusion there and that's upsetting. There are a couple different stuff plus models. There's different scalings. I know it's, uh, it's, it's annoying. The way we decided to do things was 100 is the average pitch. So our model is looking at every single pitch in the big leagues and, and, and parsing all those. So of all the pitches in the big leagues, 100 is the average pitch and 110 is like a standard deviation above, 120 is another standard deviation above. And so that's our scaling. The problem is when you add that up by pitchers or you add it up by pitch types, it doesn't always come to 100. So the average slider is like 105 stuff plus. The average forcing fastball is like 97 stuff plus. They're all kind of close to 100. Uh, but I also, and, and for someone that said, well, that doesn't make any sense. Um, I would say this, we see more and more sliders in the big leagues every year, right? Yeah, well, they work. They work exactly. So, so maybe the model's picking up on something where it's like, yeah, maybe eventually over time, they'll all be a hundred when the, when the big leagues figure out how to like, you know, mix their pitches most effectively. But, um. Yeah, I, I, you know, the the idea is that the average pitch across all of baseball is a hundred, but uh, some secondaries, if they're like a hundred and five or something, maybe closer to average than you think. I still think that, like, when you look at Bobby Miller, for example, he has a hundred and five stuff plus curveball. Uh, you know, all curveballs are like a hundred and six or hundred and seven. I would still think that that counts as an above average pitch for Bobby Miller. You know what I mean? Like, it's still a good curveball. You know, so, um, you know, across all pitches, it's still an above average pitch. Did you guys ever think of indexing everything? So if the game wide sliders 105 and guys at, you know, 110, his indexed value would be 103 or whatever percentage it is above the norm. 
Yeah. See, the thing about that is that um, we'd have to kind of re-index every year, right? Like, because Stuff Plus is actually something that's used in training environments and teams and stuff. So think of the sweeper. The sweeper was discovered, you know, I, I wrote an article about the sweeper three years ago. It's this different kind of slider. And uh, that that pitch uh, has now proliferated through the game where there's all these people throwing it. And partially it's because it's a high Stuff Plus pitch that is in these models have been shown to work. And so all, everybody wants the sweeper. The Mariners and the Yankees are teaching everybody in their, in their minor league organization the sweeper. And so... Um, that's going to change league-wide stuff plus, you know, and that's going to change what the average stuff plus for a starter looks like and what the average stuff plus for a slider looks like. And so uh, we'd have to re-index every year. Um, and then the question becomes, when do you re-index? For example, uh, Baseball Savant has a, a thing called like, you know, X, XBA, you know, expe expected batting average. And the ball changes a little bit every year and the run environment changes a little bit every year. And so for the first, you know, two and a half months of the season, XBA is not very useful because they haven't reestablished, they haven't re-indexed that stat. Well, that's weird because the first two months of the season is when we all want to look at XBA. <laughs> that's when we're all trying to figure out, oh, should this guy be hitting better? Um, and so I don't want to get into a situation where every June one, we re-index a stuff plus and everyone has to figure out again, um, if their pitchers are good or not, <laughs> if, if that makes any sense. It does. Would it be impractical to just make it dynamic and have it re-index every day? It's, uh, it's on the table. It's something to think about. Um, scaling is definitely something we talk about in the pitching plus office uh, offices a lot All right now. Uh, altitude and weather adjusting is number one and number two is probably uh, scaling. But once you've established a sort of scaling too, it becomes harder every year to uh, make a big change to that. How quickly do the three metrics stabilize? That's the most amazing part. Uh, if you're talking about stuff plus on a fastball, 18 pitches. Now, stabilizing means... Sorry, did you say 18? Yes. Wow. <laughs> Wow, that's really good. Of course, stabilizing means that there's still noise in it, right? Uh, stabilizing means that you're more than 50% uh, signal rather than noise. Uh, so there's still some regressing to be done. But, um, you know, generally you're getting signal uh, after one start and you're getting a lot of signal after three starts. Uh, the the one pitch that gives a little bit more trouble is the changeup. That one's more like 35 to 40 pitches. And if you think about how many, how many change-ups uh, a pitcher throws in a certain game, uh, that might take as many as four or five starts to really know if a guy has a good changeup. Um, and and changeups are just finicky. They're a little bit harder. Changeups and cutters are among the hardest pitches, even for stuff plus. But um, this is why we created this in a way is is to be faster in a way. Like you know, uh, we're we're in this in this game where. A lot of times a guy will debut on Friday and, you, and by Sunday you have to decide how much of your free agent auction money you want to spend on this guy. And uh, I, this has been immensely valuable for me. Um, I've been uh, biggest uh, this year on Taj Bradley, Tanner Bybee, um, uh, Bobby Miller, and Bryce Miller. Those have been uh, players that have come up and immediately had great stuff plus and uh, and have immediately signaled to me that they they were worth uh, a large investment in free agency. 
all four players that I fabbed actually. <laughs> uh, how sticky are the uh, are the metrics season to season? Stuff Plus is amazingly sticky uh, season to season. Uh, the one way that Stuff Plus can change is if a, if a pitcher play, changes teams or changes pitching coaches and changes his mix. Uh, since we sum it all up, if you if a, if a new pitching coach comes in and says, you know what, you have this high stuff plus uh, curveball you don't use very often, let's just throw that a lot more, that can change their stuff plus. But in terms of like uh, stuff plus on the fastball to stuff plus on the fastball the next year, it's, uh, it's uh, as sticky as velocity, uh, as an example, and velocity is fairly sticky. Um, it's one of the stickiest things out there, really. Uh, how often... We, how breathless are we when we hear about a guy jumping up or down, uh, you know, two ticks in spring training, you know, um, because it, it usually means something because it's a big difference. Um, so it's really sticky of year. One thing that we'd have learned, uh, Tom Tango, um, you know, the chief data architect for MOBIM went and did some validation. He said stuff plus is amazing. It's really predictive of outcomes. It's really strong. It's really strong in small samples. Uh, this is a great stat. He was not that into location plus, um, and uh, he he said it didn't add much predictive quality, um, and he thought stuff plus was more uh, more powerful than location plus. One thing I have noticed though is um, that location and command data uh, helps predict how many innings a pitcher will pitch uh, in a, in an in appearance better than stuff. So uh, I've learned not to ignore location plus when I'm looking at a pitcher deciding if they can be a starter or not. The big one for me was Matt Brash. Matt Brash has very high stuff and very low location. And if I had been more aware of that coming in, I might have uh, not gone as heavy into Matt Brash as I did. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm learning how to use this, this model as, as long as every, along with everybody else. But, um, even if location plus doesn't seem as predictive, it's, you know, if a pitcher can command multiple pitch types, they're much more likely to be a starter. And so I think that's really meaningful. Do you have any data or have you built in, in any way, degradation of stuff and location, I suppose, during a game as the pitcher gets first time, second time, 70 pitches into the game, does it degrade? And do you know how much? Location plus uh, degrades before stuff plus. And what's amazing about it is it degrades at 80 pitches. And guess how many pitches uh, per start the Tampa Bay Rays average? Wait, let me guess. 80? 80. 80. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think that's not really, uh, I don't think that's a, uh, I don't think that's a, a random, a random um, fact there. So um, it is weird. Uh, I think, I think what's happening to some extent is in order to still hit 94 on their 90th pitch, they have to muscle up and, and, and try a little harder and that trying a little harder affects their command. So I think it's still interrelated, uh, but it is interesting that uh, even while Velo and Shapes are doing well late into the game, at some point their command falters. Is that on some kind of continuum where Max Scherzer's and guys like that maybe don't degrade at 80, maybe at 90 or 88 or 96 or something like that? I would assume, yeah, I would assume that the, and I, and I and I wonder what what training has to do with it. I mean, um, how often do pitchers come out of the Rays minor leagues ready to throw 110, 120 pitches? If they trained them to throw 120 pitches, would their command go past 80? You know what I mean? So there's some there's some sort of interlocking between 
between those things in terms of how you train and uh, and how many pitches you are, how hard you're throwing, and and what the organization expects out of you, and you know the number of pitches before it degrades. When you write stories at the Athletic about the model, you have a link to a Google Sheet spreadsheet, and it includes all kinds of lists, including the numbers out of the model for AAA pitchers. I think that's fairly new. I could be wrong about that. But how predictive of big league performance are the model values from AAA? We've put them on the same scale, and they, uh, in terms of uh, stuff in the, in AAA to stuff in the minor leagues, it's uh, it's a it's a really good co- correlation about 0.8, 0.9. So uh, you know, it's a, it's a tight correlation. Once we altitude adjust, I think it'll be even tighter. Uh, so stuff plus stays the same in, in terms of like you know how it's going to play in the big leagues. There's still a lot of work that we have to do as as analysts in terms of you know, what is the value of an elite pitch? Andrew Abbott comes up and has an elite breaking ball, but his fastball is not as good. Well, how does that tie into uh, Bryce Miller, who has an elite fastball, who uh, nobody's swinging at his breaking balls, you know? So there's still a lot of, uh, of sort of effort that we can put in as analysts on top of this. But I still think it's a, it's a really good uh, tool to, to sort of help you along. Well, we need all the tools we can with all the prospects coming up. It's really helpful (laughs) to have that kind of information. You've been really public about the dynamic nature of the model and your willingness to make adjustments to it. How do you determine where the opportunities lie to improve the model? And you've already mentioned a couple. You know, critiques. Critiques are something that are difficult for anybody who's uh, spent, you know, 15 years working on something. (laughs) Uh, But when... uh, uh, you know, when you can read through um, the critiques and, 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 and spot something or just uh, just think about things. I think the, the underlying part of your question also is like, you know, when do you leave uh, good enough alone? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, when like I, I always joke that my dad is my dad, um, you know, bet on baseball when I was growing up and uh, he was always telling me, oh, I made a new tweak and it's been really good for the last two weeks. And I'd always be like, well, do you really have a model? (laughs) (laughs) If you're changing it every two weeks, do you really have a model? So you you really have to avoid uh, changing every two weeks. But the other thing that is difficult is that because teams are using uh, Stuff Plus to coach their, and Stuff Plus-like things, that sort of model, to coach their players, um, the league is changing. Um, and so you have to reach, you have to retrain the model every year just to capture the changes in the league. It's a little bit of the cat and mouse game of, you know, for example, with the sweepers, the sweepers are going everywhere. Guess what? The hitters are actually performing better against sweepers with every year because they're seeing more of them. And so if you look at sweepers there, the amount of times that a batter will take a strike is going down uh, on a sweeper and the amount of times they'll swing at a ball by a sweeper is go is, is going down. The amount of times, yeah, both of those. So they're getting better at, at, at discerning balls and strikes on the sweeper. And so that's meaningful. And you want to retrain your model to capture that, right? Uh, but you also want to have some continuity. So uh, it, it, it's a feeling game. It's a feeling game. Um, you know, we do we do try to keep it updated and we do try to stay on top of trends. And, you know, if a Yanir Cano comes up, you want to retrain the model so that it doesn't say that Yarnier Cano has bad stuff because Cano obviously doesn't have bad stuff. 
So, um, you know, you gotta, you gotta kind of train it, retrain it. You gotta, you know, make some tweaks to it and try to make it better, but you also have to keep the general structure the same so that you can say, no, this is generally the same stuff plus we've had all along. What was it about Yannir Cano's stuff that might've persuaded the model that he didn't have good stuff? Alexis Diaz, Yannir Cano, other guys, if you have a unique collection of velocity and movement, the model is basically trying to comp in a way. It's trying to say, how has this connect collection of release point velocity and movement all interacted uh, to create results in the past? Well, if we don't have, if the model doesn't have anything there, it has to kind of look around it and try to approximate it. And uh, if it doesn't have anything at all, it has a hard time. There, that's another part of the model we're we're, we're looking at, see, seeing if we can kind of do some more approximations there, and and, and uh, uh, you know how you know these things uh, relate, and how how can we take a unique new picture and approximate a stuff plus better. So that's that's uh, that's something you'll see with Alexis Diaz and uh, even Graham Ashcraft himself was was fairly unique when he came up. I mean, not that guy. Not many guys are throwing nine seven the plus uh, cutter like that as their main fastball. We know that Major League Baseball and the individual teams collect data that they don't make public. StatCast is not the StatCast that we see as members of the public at Baseball Savant is not complete. They have stuff that they're keeping under their hats. And if you had access to all the StatCast and other advanced data, what would you like to add to any of the models? One thing I'd like to do for uh, the changeup is... Um, arm speed. I would love to have arm speed because the changeup is selling the pitch and uh, we don't have arm speed as a separate thing in the model. I think there'd be also something to angles of forearms and stuff. Some of that, that the conversation we had about tipping and how people are using uh, limb tracking to find tipping, that might be uh, in, in interesting to include in the model. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, uh, there are sort of limb aspects uh, that I would like to put in that I know teams have, and I think that can make their uh, that can make their stuff plus models better than mine. You mentioned earlier that the teams are looking at your model. Are they also building their own models? Yeah, yeah. I think every team, uh, most teams have their own models, um, and uh, it's a tricky one to get right. But they do have more data than we do. They have more resources than I do. Um, and so, uh, I would assume that a lot of, uh, most teams have maybe a better one. Um, but I've also talked to people inside teams and said, uh, that ours is, is very close to theirs and is, uh, is a good one. And finally, uh, you know, how would you advise fantasy managers to use the model, use the metrics to make better pitcher decisions when they're going into their drafts? I'm a, I'm a stuffist. I, I tend towards uh, having guys with stuff. And, uh, and so, you know, I will uh, more likely avoid someone who is uh, succeeding without stuff. Uh, I think of guys like Chris Bassett and Michael Walker as guys that I'm not sure that I believe in their results uh, so far in the season. Um, and then if there's a young guy who's kind of putting, to, putting it together uh, like a Tanner Houck or, or Clark Schmidt, I'm much more likely uh, uh, to pay attention to them and, and possibly try to buy them low and things like that. And, and if you've got a debut, uh, you know, with somebody that uh, just blows you away, I'm, I'm much more likely to throw a big FA bid 
on a guy like a Taj Bradley or a Bobby Miller um, if uh, that debut goes well and it goes in line with what the stuff plus numbers say. Seems like uh, we have a couple of those pitchers every year. They, they get wins and they get good results and you just can't figure out how. Even using the old metrics, sometimes you'd be shaking your head. Uh, I think R.A. Dickey one year had a really good season and I mean, it's a knuckleball, so that's a different kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I wonder what stuff less would do in a knuckleball. Actually, <laughs> do you have the knuckleball in there? I, there's not that many knuckleballs being thrown in the game today, so oh, right. it's a very unpredictable pitch. So I think uh, it would be interesting to see what the machine would do with that. So all you college pitchers who can't get it up over eighty-nine or ninety. Try the knuckleball. It worked for Jim Bouton for a couple of years. And I suppose that uh, in season be the same kind of thing. You're looking for pitchers whose stuff plus, pitching plus, and uh, location plus are out of line with their performance for good or for ill and and use that to inform your decision making? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I have been using it to, to I mean, it, it put together my uh, labor pitching squad last year. Oh. <laughs> so uh, I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of using it. I use it myself all the time. Who were the pitchers that it identified for you that gave you the edge? My two aces were Shane McClanahan and Dylan Cease last year. Uh, that works. <laughs> You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David with Eno Saris from The Athletic. And Eno, I like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. And since we've been talking about the model and you had an article recently about the model's projections for the rest of the season, let, let's just do that this week. Pitchers for the rest of the season. We'll start with your boons. These are pitchers who look like good value for the rest of the season. In the American League, who's a pitcher you like as a boon? Yeah, you know, I mentioned Tanner Houck. I think uh, what's interesting about Tanner Houck is that he has these two uh, great stuff plus pitches in terms of uh, his sinker and his slider, but they're not great against lefties. Uh, and so the struggle for him has been to figure out how to get lefties out. I just looked at uh, his, you know, pitches over time and he's almost completely gotten rid of the slider, the sinker against lefties and is a, a cutter slider guy against them. I kind of think this is going to work. Uh, so I'm into Tanner Houck. Um, and, uh, you know, I think uh, Clark Schmidt, too, you know, both of those guys were having trouble figuring out how to get lefties uh, out. And I think that they've sort of figured it out. And right now, uh, their results aren't that great. And I think they're both affordable gets and, you know, might be on some waiver wires out there even. How about in the National League, a uh, pitcher who could be a boon for the rest of the year? I just had a really interesting conversation with Mackenzie Gore. And, uh, you know, with that comp, I, I feel like uh, he's, a, he's an interesting guy. Trevor Rogers is having a, uh, a decent, uh, uh, you know, rehab stint and coming back out of the minor leagues um, with, uh, with good stuff numbers in the past. Uh, not ones, uh, not right now, not this year, but in the past, he's had good stuff plus numbers. He has a really good changeup. Uh, and I think, um, I think he could be good and, you know, it's always a high floor when they come into, into, into Miami. And let's go to your Baines. These are pitchers likelier to disappoint for the rest of the season. Who's an American league pitcher. You think the model tells you could be a Bane. I think people might be tempted to buy low on Lance Lynn. I'm not. And how about a national league pitcher who could be a Bane? I don't believe in Jack Flaherty's recent resurgence. Uh, the stuff plus numbers are just not there. He has not gotten back his pitches. I just don't. I don't believe that that's uh, that's that's happening right now for him. 
Um, and I and Michael Walker, my model has a four six five projected ERA uh, rest of season. Um, and so uh, I, I would pan both those guys a little bit. Eno Saris's Boons, Tanner Houck of Boston, Clark Schmidt of the Yankees, in the National League, Mackenzie Gore of Washington, Trevor Rogers of Miami. On the Bain side, Lance Lynn of the White Sox, Jack Flaherty of St. Louis, and Michael Waka of the Padres. Eno, this has been fantastic. I really look forward to talking with you whenever I can. Let me ask you one last thing. You write and tweet and talk about beer and sandwiches a lot, and I love beer and I love sandwiches. So what makes for a good beer? <laughs> um, I, I'm actually a big fan of, uh, of a certain ABV range, alcohol by volume. I'm a runner and I'm older and I've got kids. I can't fall asleep on the couch. So I'm a big fan of four to 5% alcohol by volume. And I've been developing with different breweries, other half and old Irving in Chicago, other half and on the East coast, um, hazy pale ales. And so what I like about those is they're only four to 5% alcohol. So they're not uh, big on calories. They're not, they're not going to put you to sleep, but they have nice body and a little bit of, uh, 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 aromatics and, and stuff like that. That's, uh, that's what I like out of a beer is light enough, but, uh, got some body to it. When they call an IPA hazy, what makes it hazy? Uh, you know, I think it usually means more mouthfeel, more, more sort of body. You can actually see, you know, it's, you see the haze, uh, how, how they actually do it is different from brewery to brewery. Sometimes it has to do with flaked oats, then you'll get sort of an oaty taste to your, to your IPA. That's, uh, there's different breweries that do that. Um, sometimes it has to do with how much they filter, um, and stuff like that. So, you know, there's different ways to get to the haze, but, uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm a haze bro. Do you have like a go-to beer? Because I imagine you must try lots of different kinds. Are you always looking for something new? I kind of, I'm always looking, I, it's, I wish that I, I, I did have some go-tos. I mean, I really like Pliny the Elder is a, is a, is a, is a classic beer from Russian river out here on the West coast. Yes, I've had it. It's, it's terrific. I, I like, uh, I like Cezanne. So there's a, a classic beer that anybody can find called Cezanne DuPont. Um, just a, it's got a little bit of pepper, but it's a, it's a bright beer. It's, you know, 5% ABV. It's just a real nice, uh, beer. Cezanne DuPont is one of those. And then um, you know, in terms of like grocery store beers, um, I, I really like the, the sort of session IPAs that people put out. Like, um, Lagunese has one called daytime, um, that, uh, is, you know, I think it gets distribution all around the country. So, um, those are, those are my like sort of, uh, mowing the lawn beers. <laughs> and it's good that they're low alcohol, then, uh, you don't want yeah, yeah, yeah. to. I'm on, I'm on a machine. <laughs> yeah. And a dangerous one if you're uh, falling asleep yeah. at the wheel. Yeah, for sure. That's right. <laughs> what do you think about stouts? I just went to a beer festival, uh, and I kind of like trying uh, stouts and the harder stuff and the, the thicker stuff at beer festivals because they only give you a very little bit. You know, <laughs> they give you the little taster. And so uh, when I do have a stout, it's usually um, with friends because then I can have less of it and we can all have a little bit of it and we can talk about it. And there are very interesting flavors, coconut stouts. I love coconut stouts and chocolate and coffee and vanilla. And, you know, it's a really fun space. I just, I'm never going to crack open one of those big bottles <laughs> and, uh, and have it myself. That's just not going to end well. Do you ever drink industrial beer? Do you, does, if somebody handed you a Budweiser at a social event, would you say thank you and try it or are you out? Ah, 
if we're going to go uh, it, it fully in that direction, I think Coors Light or Coors Banquet has been uh, has been something that I will try. Um, you know, at a game if it's sunny, uh, and and Guinness would be my Irish Irish uh, connection there. You know, Guinness is only 120 calories, yeah. um, and it's not actually super high uh, alcohol, and uh, and it's actually not as thick as people no. think. You know, you can you can have it in in the daytime, but um, you know, Guinness is a, is a classic beer. I'm I'm, I'm into that one. You know, when my, uh, when I was young, my dad had some surgery, he was in the military and in the military hospital, they used to give them Guinness as part of the recuperation strategy every day. He, he was, <laughs> he liked beer. So he was, he was down with that. And before I let you go, what about a, a decent sandwich? What, what goes into a perfect sandwich? Um, I personally like to have elements of sweet, salty, spicy, crunchy, and soft. Well, did those all start with this? <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> the five S's of sandwich making and sandwich yeah, there, you go. there you go. It all makes sense. But I like to I like to play with uh sweet and spicy. Uh you gotta have salt in there. You know, I guess the one that I didn't mention that is kind of important sometimes is um you know, whatever the word is that describes pickles. Oh, okay. Yeah, pickly. <laughs> 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 like it doesn't start with sour. Sour? Yeah, some, some, sometimes that goes sometimes it doesn't work to put all of those into one sandwich but um uh and then crunchy you know crunchy and soft is something you want to play with but when you get all those into one sandwich i mean like the basic sandwich that i love almost has all these things is a blt because you've got you've got some you bread go. that's soft and it's toasted a little bit, so it's crunch. The bacon is crunchy. The tomato is is soft and wet, and like the lettuce is is crunchy in its own way and fresh. And you've got salt, and you know, there's no sweet on there. But I have put like sriracha uh, honey mustard, like sriracha yeah. honey mustard on a BLT already gets you to like 80% of what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's like you got sweet, salty, spicy, crunchy, soft. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's my kind of thinking is to take, take something that's classic and put a little wrinkle on it. I always put honey mustard on a BLT. Do you? Yeah. Oh yeah. There's a, there's a really famous mustard manufacturer down the street in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh -huh. Coslix they're called. And I think you can get Coslix mustard anywhere. And they make a fantastic honey mustard and they make a really, really good smoky mustard. They call it old smoky <laughs> and it's got smoke flavor in it. Oh my God. If you have like a. Dude, I think this is my lunch we're talking about. <laughs> like a corned beef on rye or a Montreal smoked meat on rye. Uh -huh. That's the mustard for that, that smoky flavor. Oh yeah, my God. Mustard is so important. Hey, S starts with an S too. So <laughs> add that in. All right. Now I'm making myself and you honey. Yeah. So uh, we'll say, uh, thank very much, Eno, for doing this. I know you're a very busy guy and I appreciate you taking the time and I look forward to talking with you again, maybe later this season or at first pitch. All right. Yeah. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me. Eno Saris writes and podcasts for The Athletic. Coming up, we have our Baseball HQ commentaries. The Minor League Minute and Frequent Flyer are coming up. But first, one last reminder about the resources available to you when you subscribe to BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We have comprehensive coverage of the prospects who can make or break a fantasy season. There's the Daily Call-Ups report. This week, the Baseball HQ scouting team looks at Cincinnati shortstop Ellie De La Cruz. Here's a hint, pretty good player. Cincinnati left-handed starter Andrew Abbott. Here's another hint, also a pretty good player. 
And we have three other right-handers, Seattle prospect Brian Wu, Atlanta prospect A.J. Smith-Chauver, and Detroit prospect Reese Olson. And don't miss this week's edition of The Eyes Have It, Baseball HQ's scouting podcast with Chris Blessing and Brent Hershey. This week, the guys open up the June Prospect Journal, so if knowing about some prospects' timelines will help you in your leagues, check out The Eyes Have It, available wherever you catch your pods. Comprehensive prospect coverage is just another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Well, I've mentioned a few of the resources on the site now at BaseballHQ.com, and they're just the tip of the iceberg of all the great content and tools you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, long shot suggestions in the Speculator column, team injury reports and player injury analysis in the Big Hurt column. There's gaming strategy analysis for Roto, Points Leagues, NFBC, and alternative formats. And we have groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day. We have updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. You get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at San Francisco outfield prospect Luis Matos is Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon. Hopefully some of you who listened to the podcast last week were able to snag the Reds' Ely De La Cruz when he was called up this week. Because if you didn't, good luck trying to pry him away from your competitors now. While there isn't another prospect like De La Cruz on the horizon, and might not be anytime soon, there are still plenty of intriguing prospects who could reach the majors over the next couple of months. One prospect worth monitoring is the Giants outfielder Luis Matos. Matos was signed out of Venezuela in 2018 and quickly established himself as one of the top prospects in baseball. He had two impressive seasons in rookie ball in low A and entered 2022 as the number 44 prospect on the Baseball HQ 100 list, but a disastrous campaign last year saw him fall off the list entirely in 2023. What a difference a year can make. He's been more selective this year with more walks than strikeouts, and that selectivity has fueled an impressive rebound. A quick start at AA Richmond led to a jump to AAA Sacramento, and on the year, Matos is slashing 335 with a 403 on base percentage and a 488 slugging percentage with 12 doubles, 5 home runs, and 13 stolen bases and 203 at-bats. Since the club doesn't have a clear spot on the roster for Matos, Giants fans and fantasy managers will most likely have to wait for an injury before he gets called up. But the Giants outfield trio of Michael Conforto, Mike Yastrzemski, and Mitch Haniger isn't exactly setting the world on fire, and at 30, Conforto is the youngest and most productive of the bunch, but because of injuries, he hasn't had a full season of a bat since 2019. If you can be patient and stash Matos away on your reserve roster, you could end up with a player with 2020 potential and some very exciting tools. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon has his Minor League Minute report regularly here at Baseball HQ Radio. 
Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, where we look at a player who might be available on your league's free agent list and who has the skills to contribute to the success of your teams. Here with a look at Angels outfielder Trey Cabbage is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Back on April 18th, he planted a home run approximately 487 feet from home plate with an exit velocity of 111.1 miles per hour, becoming the longest home run of the Miners so far in 2023. Do we mention this 487-foot shot eclipses Giancarlo Stanton's April 2nd 485-foot blast, which currently reigns as the longest Major League home run of the 2023 season? Whoa. In other words, his power is no joke. But as ABC4 Utah's sports director Data Green pointed out on May 5th, 26-year-old Los Angeles Angels outfielder Trey Cabbage has heard all the puns regarding his name. They've just all kind of ran together at this point, Cabbage said. And one crowd was in high A-ball when one guy was chanting Cole, the other was chanting Slaw. Coleslaw! Coleslaw! They would say it right as the pitch was coming in. That was actually different. Green responded to Cabbage by asking, how about he came, he slaw, and he conquered. That's it, Cabbage said. I saw that on Twitter. That's probably the coolest one so far. And let's face it, Cabbage pretty much has came, slaw, and conquered AAA so far. With 15 home runs in 2023 and a 949 OPS through 203 at-bats, 56 games at AAA Salt Lake in 2023, Cabbage certainly looks ready for the next step. Even so, Cabbage isn't currently on the Angels' 40-man roster. That's why 26-year-old Los Angeles Angels outfielder Trey Cabbage, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. And he probably is, despite batting 286 with a 373 OBP on the season. Remember, Cabbage has belted 15 home runs, including the longest one in the majors and minors this season. But did we mention that Cabbage, despite incredible power, has more steals, 17, than home runs, 15, at this point in the season? Perhaps prompting ABC4's Data Green to ask if Cabbage would ever consider joining the Salt Lake Bee's fourth-inning produce run promotion, where fans and sometimes players dress up as vegetables instead of, say, sausages like in Milwaukee. It does make perfect sense, according to Green. Not a chance, Cabbage said. I see those guys eat it on the bullpen mound, and I'm like, no, I'll go around. If I ever ran it, I'd go around, referring to the produce run participants tripping over the bullpen mound as they round the warning track. This story just keeps getting better and better. So again, borrowing from ABC4 Utah's Data Green, let us all appreciate 26-year-old Los Angeles Angels outfielder Trey Cabbage as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 9th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 20 of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Eno Saris from The Athletic. Eno is endlessly inventive and curious about baseball and fantasy baseball. He's a must-read fantasy analyst and baseball analyst and a very successful fantasy player in his own right. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analyst was Ray Murphy. 
Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, but take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you catch your pods, and if they'll let you, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, please let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing to bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring Rob DiPietro from the Dead Pull Hitter and Launch Angle podcasts. And in the weeks ahead, we'll have still more top-notch guest experts, including Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. Plus, all the usual great stuff, our news analysis and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Rob DiPietro on next Friday's full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again on Friday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.